would turn in your Bible to John 3.16. John 3.16. This will be the last Sunday in John 3.16, I think. If you would, stand as we read this together one final time, and I'm just going to read this one verse. Here John writing under the inspiration of the one that has given us physical life and life eternal. He writes, For God so loved the world that He gave His only Son that whoever believes in Him should not perish but have eternal life. Would you pray with me, beloved? Father God, we come into Your presence this morning humbled by Your Word and Your demonstration of love and compassion and kindness to those who are ultimately at our core evil apart from You. Father, the task that is before me this morning of describing the reality of the begottenness of the Son is beyond my capability. And Father, it's certainly beyond our comprehension and ability to understand in this room perfectly. So I pray that You would have Your will in Your way during this time. I pray that we would be attentive. Give me clarity of speech that we might understand this glorious truth that You've sent Your only Son into the world. In Christ's name, Amen. You may be seated. So as we've been dealing with this particular passage for some time, we've talked about the reality that the context of John 3.16 is the brokenness of the world, the relational, intellectual, and spiritual brokenness. The world is a fallen mess. We can't interpret John 3.16 rightly until we get the context of the fallen world rightly understood. We also talked a few weeks ago about the love of God in this verse. That God is demonstrating His love toward a world that is broken and fallen. That love, we we said, was triune in form. And ultimately, uh, beyond our comprehension fully, Robert Trail, we quoted as saying, where God the Father is the lover and the Son is the beloved, who can tell what love this is? Here, faith must believe and adore and cry out, Oh, the depths. It's my contention that sadly, so many in the church are viewing the love of God in John 3.16 from such a tepid light viewpoint that they would never cry out, Oh, the depths, because it's just sentimentality. It's just a human horizontal kind of love that they're reading into the text. But what we have here is the Father loving the world with a divine love. And of course, we understood and and went on to learn about the difference between the beneficent love of God, that is God's disposition towards the world, uh, is also distinguished from His benevolent love, that is His acts toward the world. He makes the sun to shine on the just and the unjust. Even St. Angelo gets rain every once in a while. That is benevolence from God. But there is particularly, and we find uh, the reality of that particular complacent love of God here in John 3.16. And that complacent love is His particular love, His special love for His Son, the Lord Jesus Christ, and for all who are in Christ. It's why it's so important. 
I think that we've got to stop asking people, are you saved? Because that's been so diluted in our culture for so long. The question you need to ask is, are you in Christ? Dallas, are you in Christ this morning? Yes, sir. Glory to God for that reality. That is such a joy that we can know and we can rest in the reality that God doesn't love us this morning, beloved, because of who we are. He loves us because who we are in. And the love that He has had for His Son is an eternal love that will not change in any respect. We don't have to wake up in the morning and go, I wonder if God still loves me. Because to question that reality would be to question whether or not He still loves His Son fully, and He does. And last week we looked at the reality that this verse... I don't know if you've ever, I don't know if I used this analogy, I I thought about it last week, but when I was a little kid, uh, my dad got really nice pair of binoculars, and my job as a child in my father's household was to find the best of his tools and his his toys and use them the way a five-year-old would use them. You you take a pair of binoculars and you don't look through it this way, you look through it that way, because that's cool, right? Everything's smaller instead of bigger. Well, that's kind of what people have done, I think, with John 3.16. Well, for God so loved the world, that means Jesus died for everyone. Friends, you can't read the verse without seeing the narrowing effect. He is demonstrating His love for the entire world, but the entire world is not what He has come to save. He's come to save those who believe upon His Son and those alone that believe upon Him. There is no hope for salvation if we are not in Christ. And so we talked about that narrowing effect and used the analogy, which by the way, I hate using analogies. Some people say, you don't use analogies enough. No, because here's the reality. Analogies always break down at some point. And so my mind just throughout the week goes, "Mm, that was almost but not quite. Um, That's the way analogies work. We use the analogy of the lake. The the love of God is the lake and the river is the sending of the sun. The, The cup is is the reality of the, the, the believing on the, the Son of God that those then that drink in the Gospel who have been born again will not perish but have through Christ eternal life. But the greatest misunderstanding is not uh, the world, though I think it's the, the understanding of world in John 3.16 is misunderstood. It's not the love, though I think it's watered down. Beloved, I come to you this morning with a solid belief in my heart that the greatest misunderstanding of John 3.16 is the gift that is given to each one of us. He gave His only Son. Some texts are going to render that only begotten Son. There is a semantical argument to be had and, and whether there are uh, motives behind the translations, I'm not going to get into all of that because I think it's less consequential than what we are going to get into. And that is the reality that God sent His monogenes, His only Son. Well, we need to have an understanding of what that means. When you say, well, Jay, that just means Jesus. Yes, but who is Jesus? Well, that's not a hard question to answer. Yes, it is. It, it took hundreds of years. Do you remember in Matthew 8, there's that question from the disciples, who is this? Even the winds and the waves obey Him. If we come to the question of who is Christ, and we think that's an easy question, I promise you, we haven't understood Christ. 
We haven't understood what the gift is here in this text. In fact, the church has been reflecting on the question the disciples asked, who is this for the past 2,000 years? And I would contend with you, and I hope you would agree with me by the time we're done today, that the hottest part of that debate came in the first 500 years of the church. Who is Christ? What is He like? Uh, It has been something that we've had to wrestle with in the church. It's not a small task to answer that question. And I can tell you this. uh, uh, Over and above any sermon I've ever preached, over and above any word I've ever wrestled with, this week has kicked my tail. And there is a, a reality that when you come to the second member of the Trinity and seeking to comprehend who He is, and expound upon that reality, it should bring you to your knees. Called every one of my friends who have gone and gotten their theological education, and I just kept saying, am I missing something? And the answer was probably, but just preach what you're going to preach anyway. And friends, I I think that there's certainly areas where we all need to grow in our understanding of the person and the work of Christ, but I think the church has given us, by the providence of God, a very clear definition of who He is. We just need to understand it. So the title of the sermon this morning, I don't often hang on titles, but I want you to understand it, The Road to Chalcedon. We're going to get to the Chalcedonian definition. And the Road to Chalcedon gives us this idea that there are ditches. When you travel, if you ever teach a teenager how to drive, you'll understand how important it is to keep the car on the road and make that the main goal and stay out of the ditches that are on either side of the road. And when it comes to understanding Christ and the road to Chalcedon, that is a very apt description because, well, not only do we veer into misunderstandings, but it's kind of as though we were driving on the road and crazy heretics jump up in front of the church all the time to discourage us from believing rightly who Christ is. And so we need to understand uh, what, the, what is at stake here? We need to understand what has been fought through. We need to understand the, the creedal uh, expressions that have been given to bring about the definition that we might have clarity of mind. I, and friends, I'm just going to start with an admission. As, I, as I've worked through this uh, text, there are so many ways, and I'm not going to tell you exactly which ones, but at times, uh, as I'm reading through the different heresies that have risen up in the church, I thought, you know, There have been times in my life that I've thought that very thing. And I'm so thankful that the church has risen and formulated creeds to help Jay Clatworthy. If you all aren't helped today at all, just stand by and let me get this out of my system. Uh, But I'm so thankful that there are clarifying confessions that point to the reality of who Christ really is. And you might get to the very end of what we're going to deal with today and come away and say, well, I already understood that, and it's so simple, just say it. But friends, I think unless we deal with the the, no, not that, we don't really truly understand. And even then, we continually need our minds renewed by the power of the Spirit of God that we would know rightly who Christ is and what it is that He's done for us. We'll never worship rightly in light of John 3.16 without understanding completely the person of Christ. And so here on our road to Chalcedon, we don't want to fall into the ditches. We come this morning much like Anselm who uh, wrote Cur Deus Homo. Why did Christ come? That was his seminal work in the 11th century. We're going to answer that question today too. 
Well, what we find in the first, again, I, I mentioned earlier, 500 years is that the church was wrestling with wanting to understand who Jesus is. And there were many challenges, but the, the central conviction of the church is that to do justice to the understanding the person and the work of Christ, we could not betray either the full humanity of Christ or the full deity of Christ. And to confuse either part or the unity of the whole would leave us with a deficient understanding of Christ and one that does not save. Hear that. The, the reason, listen, if you read, and I'm always kind of torn, because if you read George Whitfield, that great Calvinist of the Great Awakening, he was always able to write to John Wesley, that knothead Methodist who constantly used foolish ways of arguing, and he was so winsome. My dear brother, I pray that you would come to see this. I mean, he was just so kind. And I love that. I love the kindness. But y'all, i got to admit something. I also love when you rewind to the first 500 years of church history, and it is like ecclesiastical cage fighting. Like they are writing to each other going, you know, well, I mean, uh, 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 St. Nicholas, kids, don't, don't mimic this, but he, he went about punching heretics. And why? Because this was important. And if you come away today going, well, I've always believed that, you've only always believed what the Chalcedonian definition teaches because you are beyond that definition and the beneficiary of its impact on Western Christianity. So allow that to be the ground for your worship too. But this is an important, an important issue. It's one that I think we gloss over far too often. And what we have to see is the church has, has not necessarily been... Friends, when Jesus promises that the gates of hell won't prevail against the church, it's not because Jesus wonders, I wonder if they're going to be okay or if there's going to be some demonic uh, chasing of the church. He knows what's going to happen. The church, and some people might just say, why can't we just come up with a simple statement that we just all believe in Jesus? Well, if John 3.16 wasn't set in a world that is fallen intellectually, spiritually, emotionally, and otherwise, we could all do that. The problem is we live in a dark world and as soon as we ex exert a positive truth, there are going to be false teachers that will arise and seek to drag us in the wrong direction. And so what the church is doing here is not trying to pick fights. The fights come to the church and the church is not dogmatic. They're bulldogmatic about who Christ is and what it is He's accomplished. And I would contend with you this morning, if you want to know why the church is weak today, it's because we don't have the same moral fiber. Nobody wants to stand and give a definition that would cause their, the person in the seat next to them even to be uncomfortable. These people were willing to die. Why? Because it's important. Don't let your, your political uh, religious freedom lull you to sleep thinking that the judgment day is going to be lessened somehow because you lived in a society where there was religious tolerance and freedom. I'm not decrying those things, but ultimately, we want to know who Jesus is. We remember in John 12, 21, there is that great cry, Sir, we wish to see Jesus. Well, all of the, the men that ga gathered at the Council of Nicaea and Constantinople, 
And those here that ultimately came to the, the, definition, the Chalcedonian definition, they want you to see Jesus. That's the point. And so if we're going to understand Jesus rightly, we need to understand uh, the, some of the heresies. Docetism uh, is one, and, and I'm going to try and go through these quickly because when you get to the isms, we all start to fall asleep, right? Like we start to, it, it, it's, it's a belaboring reality to try and filter out, especially when you have a guy that talks so fast trying to teach them to you. Bedocetism, um, which, which comes from the Greek to seem, is a heresy that would expound and teach that Jesus merely came uh, in, in, in a phantom sense, that, that Jesus seemed to be human. This is a form of Gnosticism, but he wasn't really human. The church would speak to that. Or Arianism. Arianism was again uh, condemned at the Council of Nicaea in 325. Uh, the Arians were people who followed Arius that were concerned with the transcendence of God and, and the monotheistic God. And, and, and so their assertion is that God cannot share His being with anyone else. If He did, we would no longer be talking about monotheism. And only God is eternal and everything else is created. And so the Arian assertion, remember, simply is this. There was a time when Christ wasn't. There was a time when Jesus wasn't. Jesus is a created being. If you ever hear this at your front door, and there is a Jehovah's Witness standing on the other side of the door, you have an Arian standing on your front doorstep. And you need to help them to understand that there was never a time that Christ wasn't. That He is eternally God. And so, at the Council of Nicaea in 325, uh, th- there was this affirmation that Jesus was truly God and truly man. That He was uh, uh, not made and He was one substance with the Father. Let me read the, the Nicaean Creed for you this morning and see if that it, it, you can pick out how it pushes against this idea that there was a time when Christ wasn't. I believe in one God, the Father Almighty, Maker of heaven and earth, and of all things visible and invisible, and in one Lord Jesus Christ, the only begotten Son of God, begotten of His Father before all worlds, God of God, light of lights, very God of very God, begotten, not made, being of one substance with the Father, by whom all things were made, who for us men and our salvation came down from heaven, was incarnate by the Holy Ghost of the Virgin Mary, and was made man, and was crucified also under Pontius Pilate, he suffered and was buried, and on the third day he arose again according to the Scriptures, and ascended into heaven, and sitteth at the right hand of the Father, and he shall come again with glory to judge both the quick and the dead, whose kingdom shall have no end, and I believe in the Holy Ghost, the Lord and giver of life, who proceeds from the Father and the Son, who with the Father and the Son together is worshipped and glorified, who spoke by the prophets, and I believe one holy Catholic Church and apostolic Church, and acknowledge one baptism for the remission of sins, and I look for the resurrection of the dead and the life of the world to come. Amen and Amen. 
What a joy it is that we are the benefactors of that great sweeping statement. And we could spend, trust me, this old boy could spend months in just the Nicene Creed unpacking all that's there. Don't worry, I won't. But we really do need to get to the the meat of what's going on in that particular uh, assertion. Really what the church is wrestling, 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 see there's Missouri coming out, wrestling with is the oneness of God and the threeness of God. That there is one triune God and one only. And so how do we speak of the oneness of God and yet at the same time speak of the threeness of God? And and so there are these two categories that come out of the theological work and it doesn't lord over the text, it comes under the Word of God. What do we know of the Word of God is really what the Nicene Creed is seeking to understand. And so when it comes to the oneness of God, we know that there's one true God. And so there is this word nature or being or essence that that comes out of the discussion. In the Greek, Dion, you have usia, uh, which is then, as we move along, it, it comes to be expressed as homo usia, the, of one nature or one being. And again, the Arians would deny this, that, that the three members of the Trinity are not of one essence because there was a time when Christ was not. That was their error. And so we have to ask this question then. So there is, when we talk about the oneness of God, we're talking about His nature. And so we have to come to that nature and we ask this question. What is that nature? What is God? And the way that we answer that question typically in Western Christianity is by answering the attributes of God. Giving the distinction of His omnipresence and His omnipotence and, and, and His aseity and, and all of who God is by nature. And what the Nicene Creed lays down for you and I is that the usia, the nature, the being, the essence is all one in God. There is one nature in God. But then we move on to the threeness of God and we come to the hypostasis or the persons of the Godhead. That there are three distinct persons in that one usia. In the one nature, there are three persons. They're distinct. And so the question then becomes are y'all still buckled up and with me? All right. I'm telling you, we're not in the deep end. We're in like the deepest of the deep ends. So so the question that we then have to distinguish as we work through the text is how do I distinguish the persons from the nature? How do I distinguish the usia from the hypostasis? And the answer to that question is, well, that we first of all distinguish by what we don't distinguish by, and that is by the attributes that Each three members of the Trinity all have the same nature, the same attributes, the same deity. They share those things and not one of them lays any of those parts down. And so the area of distinction then comes not in the the nature of the triune Godhead, but in the persons of the triune Godhead. And in that is the personal relationships, how they relate to one another. And so we have to ask the question, what makes the Father the Father? Is it that the Father has more attributes than the Son? Now Arius would probably answer that question, yes. 
But we would answer that question uh, in accordance with the Nicene Creed, no. The, the Father is not the Father because He is more God than the Son or He has other attributes. The Father is the Father by nature of His relationship to the Son. He has fatherhood. And you can't think of the Son without the Father. You can't think of the Father without the Son. And so what the church did was then to begin to think about um, the relationship between Father and Son in terms of what was called eternal generation. Uh, the, the, the eternal begetting of the, the Son. He is the monogenes of the Father. And you go, okay, now I'm thoroughly confused. Welcome to the club, my friend. This is high above our thinking as it should be. This is the one true triune God of all of the universe. What we need to understand is when we're talking about, when we read the word begotten, we are not there to infer the same kind of conjugal natural relationship that we have with our fathers. I'm, trying, I'm going to try to deal with this delicately. This is not like sonship that we have. The sonship that all of us in this room have is there was a time that we weren't. And then your parents did something. And then you were. And what Arian heresy wants to do is make somewhat of the same assertion that the father did something and then the son was. And the, the Nicene Creed would say, no, there was never a time that the son wasn't because of eternal generation. Jesus was not begotten in the way that we are. And so what we need to understand again is this is relational. The Father, the Son is from the Father. The Father generates the Son. The Spirit proceeds from the Father and the Son. All you need to do to have good Nicene theology is just speak about the Father, the Son, and the Spirit the way the Bible does. Because that's what it teaches. The, the Father generates the Son eternally. The Son is from the Father. The Spirit proceeds from the Father and the Son. And, and this word processions is so important uh, in understanding the persons and how they relate to one another. Divine processions. The, the three share, again, the same attributes. But their eternal, their, their relations, the other part, not only are we generated differently than the second member of the Trinity, His generation is eternal. Also, the relationship inside of the Trinity is different. There was a time when I did not have a Texan in my family. But about, what, ten years ago he was born? Eight? You're ten. About eight years ago, Bennett Brown Clatworthy was born into the Clatworthy family, and we are now anchored to the Texan culture for all of eternity. Uh, that, that relationship has changed. It's temporary. But inside the Godhead, the relationship is eternal. It always has been. There never was a time when there wasn't perfect unity in the Godhead relationally in the three persons. And so that's what... Now all of that, if that's melting your brain, let's go back to John and his kind pastoral way of putting it. Turn to John chapter 1 with me. In the beginning was the Logos. That is the essence of God. The essence of the person of Christ. And the Word, the Logos, was with God and the Word was God and, in the and was in the beginning with God. All things were made through Him and without Him was not anything made that was made. So the propositions of Trinitarian theology um, are are all here, that God is one, that the Father is God, the Son is God, 
The Spirit is God. And that the three persons are distinct. That the Father is distinct from the Son, not by way of attributes, but the Father has fatherhood. That's how we distinguish the Father. That the Son is not the Son because He has a lesser essence than the Father. The Son is the Son because He's been eternally begotten of the Father. And the Spirit has procession from both the Father and the Son. The distinctions come in their persons, not in their essence. And the church wanted to make that very clear. So as we move on, we're moving on. We've just passed through Nicaea. Was that fun or what? That was great, wasn't it? Uh, with a lot of clarity. Uh, we're not in, dos- in, 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 in Arianism and modalism. and uh, We are not in all of those heresies because we just put them in the rearview mirror and we said, Amen, you can print the Nicene Creed in the bulletin anytime, Jay, and I'll jump up and we can say it together. Even the Holy Catholic Church part. Happy about that. Because that's the universal church, not the Roman Catholic Church. That's a different discussion. So then we have to go on to the the biblical principles that are at work as we approach Chalcedon. Think of these as the the, the signs that come up, the big green signs that we're about to go somewhere, and you you need to have these in your mind. One is is the question is, we're we're dealing with the, the, the person of the incarnation, the subject. Who is it that becomes flesh? Is it the Father that becomes flesh? Is it the Spirit that is just enwrapped in flesh? Who is it? Who is the person of the incarnation? And then we have these two components of the incarnation. The divine nature that Jesus is truly, and we know ultimately it's the Son, is the person, the subject of the incarnation. The divine nature is another heading that we need principle, that we need to understand, that, that he, Christ was truly God. He was God the Son. We have a, the second member, the second person of the Trinity here adding to Himself another nature. Look at verse 14 of John chapter 1. All you need is the Gospel of John, the first three chapters, to be Nicene and uh, Chalcedonian, and there are others. But, but here we have good Christology that John's working out. Verse 14, And the Word became flesh and dwelt among us, And we have seen His glory, glory as of the only Son from the Father, full of grace and truth. So there is the divine nature, there is the human nature as well. He was truly man. And and this, what we're going to get into, there is a distinction between a word man versus a word flesh. And that seems like you're splitting hairs. It is because you are and it's important to split this hair. One would say a word flesh that the second person of the Trinity merely took on a physical body. The other, a word man, takes on the connotation that not only did did Jesus take on flesh, but an entire human uh, composition. A body, a soul, a spirit. Jesus has two natures that are complete. One divine, one fully human. Neither truncated into the other. And they both have a perfect unity. So the key question between Nicaea and Chalcedon was how to relate the two natures of Christ together and how to speak of Christ's unity. Now again, here we're, still, we're going to deal again with persons and natures. Uh, we're going to deal with the subject of the incarnation. Now, I'm going I'm to try to quickly but helpfully go through 
um, three different uh, three different heresies uh, that are confronted in the Chalcedonian statement. One is Apollinarianism. If you're taking notes, put in parentheses next to Apollinarianism, one person, 1.5 natures. This view uh, attributed to the bishop of Laodicea, he taught that while in all other human beings there are a body, a soul, and a spirit, there's an argument about trichotomy or dichotomy, they're not here to do that today, but in Christ there are only, there, there's only a human body and soul. The divine logos, the spirit, has, has, has taken over where the, the human spirit would be. Well, what is, the, what is the problem with Apollinarianism? With, with kind of meshing the humanity and the deity in such a way that just a part... Now remember, in, in Apollinarianism, just a part of the deity takes over the humanity of Jesus. Only about half, if, if we're dichotomist people. But the problem, ultimately, with Apollinarianism is that part of the human nature is swallowed up in, into the divine, and so you don't have a true human being in, in the fullness. And, and so the, the, the uh, de- Chalcedonian definition is going to push against this as heresy because it is truncating the, the two natures in, in Christ. Nestorianism is the next uh, error, and this is, if you again want a quick parenthetical that I think is helpful, maybe it's not to you, is two persons, two natures. In uh, Nestorianism, this is the view that there are two separate persons in Christ, a human person and a divine person, two completely different People. This view ultimately was rejected because nowhere in Scripture do we see that a human nature of Christ is an independent person de- de- uh, deciding to do something contrary to the divine nature. Ultimately, the problem here is that there is a divide between the human and the divine uh, nature, the human and the divine persons, and there is no unity. So Nestorianism breaks down the unity of Christ hypostatic union of his divinity. And we, we need to push against that. The third is Eutychianism. Didn't learn that one in school, did you? And, and this is the error here. If, again, if you want a helpful parenthetical, is one person, one nature. What, what is really being taught here is Eutychius taught that the human nature of Christ was taken up and it was absorbed into the divine. So, so if we're going to think about um, Apollinarianism, again, there's a component of Jesus' humanity that's absorbed into the divine. That's an error. Nestorianism is a dividing of the human and the divine natures, two distinct persons. They are two separate entities. Here in Eutychianism, I, I, I like to think of things really simply, and I'm sure that this is going to mess it up for some of you, but it's like you take the, the person of Christ and the two natures and you throw them in a blender and what comes out is Jesus. Well, the problem is, is there's no distinction between the human and the divine. And that becomes problematic in the way that the Bible speaks of Jesus. And so we come to the Chalcedonian definition. I know you were waiting with bated breath. Let me read it here for you. We then, following the Holy Fathers, all with one consent, teach men, 
this is the last time that the church was ever unified about it. No, I'm kidding. We then, following the Holy Fathers, all with one consent, teach men to confess one and the same Son, our Lord Jesus Christ, the same perfect in deity and the same perfect in humanity, truly God and truly man, the same of reasonable or rational soul and body, coessential with the Father according to the, to the deity, and the same uh, consubstantial with us according to our humanity. That is, He is the same in essence with God, but He also has a full human nature. Like us, according to all things except sin, begotten before all ages of the Father, according to the deity, and in these latter days for us, for our salvation, born of the Virgin Mary, the Mother of God, that is God-bearer, Theotokos, according to His humanity, one and the same Christ, Son, Lord, only begotten, being made known in two natures, without confusion, without change, without division, without separation, the distinction of the natures being by no means taken away by the union, but rather the property of each nature being preserved and concurring in one, and one substance not parted or divided into two persons, but one and the same Son, the only begotten God, the the Word, the Lord Jesus Christ, as the prophets of old declared concerning Him, and the Lord Jesus Christ Himself has taught us, and the Nicene Creed and the Holy Fathers has been handed down to us. Amen anyhow. And, and, and what you really have to get is what the Chalcedonian definition is doing is this formulation seeks to summarize and address every problem that had plagued the church with regard to the person and the work of Christ. It argued against docetism. Here, the Lord Jesus Christ was perfect in His humanity, truly man, consubstantial, homoousion, with us according to His humanity, and born of the Virgin Mary. It does away with adoptionism. It argued for the personal subsistence of the Logos, begotten of the Father before the ages. It did away with modalism. It distinguished... Again, modalism is the reality that, that God manifests Himself in three different uh, persons, but they're not distinct. It distinguished the Son from the Father both by the titles of Father and Son and by its reference to the Father having begotten the Son before the ages. It annihilated Arianism because it affirmed that Jesus was uh, perfect in deity and truly God. It challenges Apollinarianism because it confesses that Jesus Christ was truly man of a reasonable, a rational spirit and body, consubstantial with us according to His manhood in all things like unto us. Our Savior is like us in every respect but sin. That's what they sought to make clear. In Nestorianism, it affirmed that Mary was the God-bearer, not in order to exalt Mary, but in order to affirm Jesus' true deity and the fact of a real incarnation. It also spoke throughout of one and the same Son and one person and one subsistence, not parted or divided into two persons, and whose natures are in union without division and without separation. There is perfect unity, not two different people in the God 
head, not two persons. And it dealt with Eutychianism in that it confessed that in Christ there are two natures without confusion and without change, the property of each nature being preserved and concurring in one person. So let's summarize this morning, shall we? When we come to Nicene Trinitarian theology that I hope we all hold to, there is one nature in the Godhead, but three distinct person. God is one in essence. The Father is God, the Son is God, the Spirit is God, and each member of the Trinity, each person, is distinct from the other. But as we come, and this is where the, de- the Chalcedonian definition matters and should bless each one of us, the second person of the Trinity has, has taken on a, a new nature, a human nature. The second member of the Trinity has one person, two natures, one divine, one human. Now here's the question. This is what everybody has been asking. Why does this matter? Good question. Because only, only one, only Jesus is the being who was truly God and truly man. And only a being who is both divine perfect in deity, complete in His person and essence in in the divine, and also truly human, can save us from our souls. Nestorianism, Apollinarianism, they all ultimately, Eutychianism, they all ultimately damn us because Jesus is not who, Christ, who, who the Father has, has promised, that the, the, the distinctions are distorted. And, and ultimately, here's the reality, we will worship in light of eternity. We will see Jesus as one in essence with the Father, fully, truly God, but also truly man. Complete divinity in complete unity with a complete human person equals complete redemption. And that's why it matters. If this is incomplete, here's the, here's the, if Nestorianism, if Apollinarianism, if Eutychianism, if, if those things are true, then we can, we can mess with the humanity, make Jesus less than human. And the problem is there is that Jesus doesn't ransom all of who a human is. The Chalcedonian definition set out to affirm this morning this reality that both our body, our soul, and our spirit are redeemed in the Lord Jesus Christ because He possessed all three. Look at verse 14 with me again. This is all here in this one verse. And the Word, that is the Lagos, the essence of God, became flesh, sarke. Uh, the likeness of sinful flesh and dwelt among us. The word man, that first phrase literally is the word man, both the, the essence and the humanity, the, 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 the deity and the humanity dwelt among us. And we have seen His glory, glory as of the only Son, the monogenes, from the Father, full of grace and truth. 
So when we read John 3.16 and we see that He gave His only begotten Son, don't just think of, okay, Jesus was up there and He kind of took on a partial human flesh only. No, Jesus came and He took on body, soul, and spirit, the complete human nature. But that nature in the, in the human form was other than you and I. Here's the reality. We are no longer under Adam because Christ came in the likeness of sinful flesh and now by the Spirit, we are in Christ. We are ransomed out of the flesh into the Spirit only because Christ took on the flesh. Isn't that a joy? Isn't that a wonder that as we read... Listen, if I, if I can, and I don't mean to trifle with God's Word, but if we understand John 3.16 rightly, aptly, it would read something like this. God the Father so loved the world that He gave the monogenes, the one person, the Jesus, same in essence with the Father, having two natures, having taken on the fullness of the human nature, that whoever believes on Him will not perish, but have everlasting life. He is the only one that can do this. There is no other. There, there's no one else. And this is also why theologies that try to put redemption back on, well, you have to add your works. Friends, our works are done ultimately outside of Christ in the flesh, and we have no hope there. The only hope is in the, the, the God-man, in the divine person, the second member of the triune Godhead, the one who will rule and reign over us for all of eternity. Now, when I began the study of John 3.16, I said that there are two ways to misunderstand this passage, and the two ways are to misunderstand what comes before it or to misunderstand what comes after it. Now, we need to understand what comes after it in verses 17 through 21. For God did not send His Son into the world to condemn the world, but in order that the world might be saved through Him. Whoever believes in Him is not condemned, but whoever does not believe in Him is condemned already because he has not believed in the name of the only Son of God. And this is the judgment. The light has come into the world, and the people love the darkness rather than the light because their works were evil. For everyone who does wicked things hates the light and does not come to the light, lest his works should be exposed Again, what we need to see in what comes after this reality of John 3.16 is really found in verse 19 is, is that the world is an evil place. What is the right response to God sending the eternal Son into the world to assume a, a nature of human personhood? That, that we can believe upon Him and have everlasting life. What's the right response to that? To believe upon His name. To worship Him for all of eternity. But what we find in verse 19, and this is the judgment, that the light has come into the world and the people love the darkness rather than the light because their, words, their deeds were evil. God sends His only Son, eternal in His essence, with the Father, taking on human flesh spirit, and soul, so that we might have everlasting life, and yet the world still rejects Him and despises Him. That's how fallen this world is, and we need to understand that. But friends, we also need to come to a fully Trinitarian understanding of what this passage is teaching. 
This passage is speaking about the Father's eternal generation of the Son and the Son proceeding and ultimately coming in the incarnation, in the Immaculate Conception, taking on a human person. But there's a reality of the Spirit emanating from both the Father and the Son too. And you say, Jay, I don't see that in John 3.16. You're right, because it was all in John, 1, uh, John 3 Verses 1 through 15, look at these verses with me that speak of the Spirit's work. Now, there was a man named, uh, of the Pharisees named Nicodemus, a ruler of the Jews. This man came to Jesus by night and said to him, Rabbi, we know that you are a teacher come from God, for no one can do these things that you do unless God is with him. And Jesus answered him, Truly, truly, I say to you, unless one is born again, he cannot see the kingdom of heaven. Nicodemus said to him, How can a man be born when he is old? Can he enter a second time into his mother's womb and be born? Jesus answered, Truly, truly, I say to you, unless one is born of the water, regeneration, and the Spirit, he cannot enter the kingdom of God. That which is born of the flesh is flesh, and that which is born of the Spirit is spirit. Do not marvel at what I say to you. You must be born again. The wind blows where it wishes, and you hear its sound, but you do not know where it comes from or where it goes. So it is with everyone who is born of the Spirit. Nicodemus said to him, How can these things be? Jesus answered, Are you a teacher of Israel, and yet you do not understand these things? Truly, truly, I say to you, we speak of what we know and bear witness to what we have seen, but you do not receive our testimony. If I had told you earthly things and you did not believe, how can I tell... How can you believe if I tell you heavenly things? No one has ascended into heaven except he who descended from heaven, the Son of Man. And as Moses lifted up the serpent in the wilderness, so must the Son of Man be lifted up, that whoever believes in him may have eternal life. God the Father sends the Son, the only begotten, eternally begotten, from from uh, and then from the Father and the Son proceed the Spirit. What, what we are taught in this passage is the fullness of the redemptive work of the triune Godhead. That there is no way for us to believe apart from the work of the Spirit proceeding from the Father and the Son. And there is no redemption unless the Son is sent by the Father. It is all ultimately then in in the eternal counsel of the triune Godhead. And this is how John could claim as he began to defend the church, talk about defending errors. That didn't start at the council of Nicaea or at uh, Chalcedon. It started right here in uh, 1 John chapter 1. Turn with me there if you would like. Here John says, that which was from the beginning, the Logos the second member of the Trinity, completely one in essence with the Father and with the Spirit, but yet proceeding that which was from the beginning, which we have heard, which we have seen with our eyes, which we have looked upon and have touched with our hands concerning the word of life. The life was made manifest and we have seen it and testified to it. it this was a real person. That's the important reality that John's asserting. And testify to it and proclaim to you eternal life, which was with the Father and was made manifest to us. That which we have seen and heard we proclaim also to you, so that you too may have fellowship with us. And indeed, our fellowship is with the Father and with His Son, Jesus Christ. And we are writing these things 
so that our joy may be complete. Beloved, why is it that Jesus had to come? Well, we learn that there are really four reasons. He, he, he came in order to, to fulfill God's original intention for humanity, to bring us to glory, to destroy the power of, of, of death and Satan, and in order to become a merciful and a faithful high priest. And he does that by assuming a human nature. Jesus is truly God and truly man. And that is what has been given for you. Allow that to fuel your worship both now and throughout eternity. Would you pray with me? Father God, we come into your presence trembling at all of this historical theological reality because it's not just, it's not just historical and theological. It's personal. Uh, the reality of your incarnation is who you are. That you are one in the divine essence, in the triune Godhead, but in two persons, truly God and truly man. And so we come before you this morning worshiping you for condescending to those who were yet dead in their trespasses and sins. And Father, we thank you that before the foundation of the world, you sent uh, you, you determined to send the Son. And in the fullness of time, You have sent the Helper, the Spirit, that You would open the blinded eyes of, of fallen man, that we would turn from our sin and believe upon Christ. Father, uh, might we glorify You in who You are fully in, in Your triunity in the work of redemption. Might we step away realizing evermore by understanding more of who You are that we had nothing to do with our redemption. That it ultimately is all by your fatherly hand through the Son in the power of the Spirit. Father, we will praise you now and throughout all of eternity because what you have given for us, that is your only begotten Son, Monogenes, the only one that could save us from our sin. In Christ's name, amen. Rise if you would. And let's sing it as well with my son.